pray. We thank you for getting us together, Lord, to come into your presence to study your word. We pray that your anointing will rest upon pastor as the Lord teaches us and we will be able to learn. Lord, and uh, Lord, it will just not be a knowledge, Lord, an excitement to know what is uh, the book of Revelation, but it will transform our lives, so Father, that we may live a life that will bring glory to your name and be ready, Lord, for your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. We have already seen the introduction. Today we are going to start the first chapter. And as you all know that of the 444 verses that are there in the book of Revelation, 278 verses contain one or more references to the Old Testament. So what we'll be doing during this Bible study is we will be going to and forth from Old Testament to Revelation, Old Testament to Revelation to understand uh, the meaning of the message from the book of Revelation. Uh, if you have any questions uh, during the session, you can ask your questions, you can enter your questions in the chat box, or if you want to wait till the end of the session also, it's okay. Whatever is convenient for you, you can write your questions then and there, and we will try to answer all these questions towards the end of the session. So today we are going to start Revelation chapter 1. Uh, what you find in verses 1 to 8 is basically greetings to the churches. Um, so how does he introduce uh, this book that is there in verses 1 to 3? <clears throat> uh, Revelation is the last chapter <clears throat> in, in God's story of redemption. If we take each book as a chapter, so when we come to the book of Revelation, that is the last chapter in God's story of redemption. And it tells us how it all ends. Now, God has given us a detailed and clear record of the ending. Now, we don't have problem with the creation story. As the creation story, uh, is not vague. When we read Genesis, we understand how this world came into existence. In the same way, God also in his grace has given us a detailed record of the ending uh, in this book. Now, the book of Revelation is unique in New Testament literature. When you, when you are thinking of all the books, 27 books in New Testament literature, this particular book is unique. Why do we say it is unique? What comes to your mind when we say the book of Revelation is unique in New Testament literature? Why we say unique is because it is the only book in, in the New Testament, which has been communicated to its human author by angels. In the Old Testament, of course, uh, angels mediate. There were some messages that were mediated through angels in the, in the Old Testament. For example, if you look at Daniel chapter 7, 16, or Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 to 21, we will find how the angels uh, came and mediated their messages. Or even in Exodus 3, 2, we find, uh, as well as in Judges 6, 11, 23, we know the story of Gideon, uh, how the angel came and gave the message to Gideon. But when it comes to this book of Revelation, the entire book 
is mediated by angels. That's why we call this book, uh, we say this book is unique in New Testament uh, literature. We go to the first verse in, the, in chapter one. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, in the, in the introduction itself, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So what John is trying to tell us is the origin, the origin of this message or the source of this message. What is the source of this message? The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. And he is also telling what is the, what is the content of this book? The content is what must soon take place. So in verse 1-1, we get both origin or the source of revelation and also the content, the message of the book. So John is telling that the source of revelation is God. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. And to show his servants, basically to show God's people. The message is for God's people. And he says, this revelation is from Jesus Christ. While this revelation is definitely from Jesus Christ, it is also about Jesus Christ. It is from Jesus Christ, and it is also about Jesus Christ. Because in Revelation 22, 16, uh, when we come to Revelation 22, we'll see that I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Basically, this, is, this message is from Jesus Christ. The source is from God. And the message is also about Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospels also speak about Jesus Christ. All the four Gospels, they, they tell us the work of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the difference between the Gospel account and the Revelation account? Now, if you look at the Gospels, basically the Gospels are telling us about his first coming in humiliation. Gospels basically narrate the story of Jesus Christ in his first coming, and it is in humiliation. But the book of Revelation will present Jesus Christ coming in second coming in exaltation. He is not going to come in humiliation. This time when he comes, he is going to come in exaltation. So the, in the very first verse itself, we get a clue as to what we can expect in this book. So what can we expect in this book? So every vision and description about Jesus Christ will be one of majesty, glory, and power. Every vision about Jesus Christ <clears throat> will no longer be in humiliation, it will be in exaltation. It's going to describe Jesus Christ in majesty, in, in power, and in glory. Now, the revelation comes from God through 
Jesus Christ, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So the revelation comes from God through Jesus Christ, and he communicates to his servant, John, by an angel. So if you see the line of communication, how this book has come to us, God is the source. God gives this message to Jesus. And Jesus gives that message to an angel. And an angel or angels will communicate that message to John. And John will communicate it to the churches. Other words, to the believers, to us. Now, this is how the message has come to us from God, the source, through Jesus Christ, who communicates it to the angel and then to John and then to the churches. Now, what is the message? The purpose of this message is what must soon take place. That is the purpose of this message. What must soon take place. Now, what must soon take place, <clears throat> basically it conveys the meaning, the God's purpose will be fulfilled. We may have doubts, we may have questions, we, we may struggle to figure out God's message, but God's purpose will be fulfilled. There is no doubt about it. Now, when John wrote this message, what must soon take place, John intended uh, his message for his own generation. That is what uh, John intended. That's why the Bible is a book that not only speaks to the audience of its authors or the writers, but it is always relevant. It also speaks to us. Now, this message is trustworthy because in Revelation 22, 6, uh, we come across this verse, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. That is, this is there in the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. Now, these things must soon take place. Now, it does not mean, where, how do we understand this word soon? It is not talking about in a brief time span. The way soon means he is coming soon, so we expect the person will come today itself. Is coming soon. But soon doesn't imply a brief span of time, but rather it implies it is the message, the these things are imminent. It will definitely happen. It is not about the time frame, but these things that you read in the book of Revelation will happen. So this is such an important message John says it is a blessing for all, uh, for one who reads it aloud, not only for the one who reads it aloud, also to those who hear and who obey the message. Because it is a prophecy, so John says, whoever reads it aloud, he will be blessed, and also those who hear and obey it, they'll be blessed. Now, I also for a long time thought that one who reads it aloud means we also should read it aloud. Uh, that is not, uh, the, that's not the meaning in this place. In the first century church, uh, there'll be only one copy of the scroll because we, now we have so many books, so many copies. 
those days they had only one scroll. So in the, in the first uh, century church, there'll be one man who will read the message. So John is referring to that person. The one who reads it aloud means in the congregation, one who reads it aloud, he will also be blessed. And the congregation members, those who hear and obey what is written in the prophecy, they will also be blessed. Uh, that is the meaning. We don't have to read it aloud. If you, if you can read it aloud, it's always good. But uh, we should not take it literally in the sense, I should also read it aloud for me to be blessed. If you read it, we'll be blessed. We should read, we should hear, and we should obey. That's what applies to us. We should read this book, we should hear the message, and we should obey, and then we will be blessed. Now, we saw in the introduction that John was very fond of number seven. Number seven denotes completeness. Number seven denotes uh, fulfillment, perfection. So John says, John also uses uh, beatitude. Like we see in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those uh, we see in, in Matthew chapter 5, John uh, has seven beatitudes in this book, seven blessings. Now, the first blessing we saw uh, in Revelation 1.3, uh, there are seven blessings in this book. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The second blessing is in Revelation 14, 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Now, the third blessing is in Revelation 16, 15. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so has not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. The fourth blessing is in Revelation 19, 9. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he had added, these are the true words of God. The fifth blessing is in Revelation 26. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Sixth blessing is in Revelation 22, 7. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. The seventh blessing is in Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Uh, this book is full of blessings. Though it talks about the end, this book assures the believers blessings bountiful blessings. When, when the word blessing occurs in seven places, it shows plentitude, plenty of blessings. God wants to bless his children. Blessings are assured to his children. That's, that's the message in this book. And John calls this book as prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So this book has the same weight like the Old Testament uh, prophetic books. This book has the same weight. So because it's like a Old Testament prophetic book, a divine blessing can be pronounced on all those who read this book, who hear it, and who obey it. So blessings are assured 
as we are doing this Bible study, blessings are assured for all of us because we are trying to read here and we are trying to obey the word of God. Now, that is the message that we find in Revelation chapter 1, 1 to 3. Now, the greetings to the churches we find in Revelation 1, 4 to 8. Now, John is extending a personal greeting to the seven churches. So he says, the seven churches that are in Asia. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. This Asia is not where we are. This Asia is not the, the continent of Asia. Uh, th this represents the Roman province, uh, Roman province of Asia. And this is the Roman province of Asia, not the Asia where we live in, not this continent, but the Roman province of Asia. You find the names of all the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll come to this later. Now, John is greeting the seven churches and they are not supposed to read only the letter that is addressed to a particular church. They are supposed to read the entire book. The introduction makes it very clear. The message is for the entire book is for all the churches. Now, we don't know on when we come to the letters to the churches, we should not, believe, we should not think that church will read only that particular letter which is addressed to them. No, they'll be reading the complete book, the complete message, the complete letter from Revelation chapter 1 to 22 will be read in all the seven churches. Now, we don't know on what principle the seven churches were selected because by the time John wrote this, there were more than seven churches in this area. Because when we look at the book of Acts, all these churches are located in, in the Roman province of Asia. So we don't know on what basis these seven churches were selected. Probably John had a special relationship with these seven churches. Uh, in, a, in any case, when John uses the word seven, uh, basically seven denotes completeness. Uh, so it is not only completeness, these seven churches, they are representative of the whole church in all the world. So this is a message not only to those seven churches, but to all the churches in the world. Uh, that is the message. And that's how he uses the word seven, completeness. Now, John says in 1.4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, John opens his communication with a dual salutation. In other words, he uses the word grace and peace. We all are familiar with this phrase because the Apostle Paul uses this phrase in all his letters. And even uh, Peter in his epistles, 1 Peter 1 verse 2 and 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, you find the same phrase, grace and peace. In other words, it has become a traditional greeting among Christians those days. And John is using that phrase, grace and peace. Now, if you see this order, it is always grace and peace. It is never peace and grace. It is grace and peace. It, it cannot be peace and grace. It is because of the grace of God, we have peace and peace with God 
and we enjoy the peace of God. It is because of his grace. So his grace comes first. God in his grace has touched all of us and it is because of that grace we have peace with God and because we have peace with God, we also enjoy the peace of God in the midst of our difficult situations. Even when we go through the hardest experiences of life, we can enjoy the peace of God because of his grace. Now, having said that, he continues in 1, 4, and 5, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Now, we see a very strange order here. He's talking about God and then he's talking about the Holy Spirit and then he's talking about Jesus Christ. We, this is a very strange order and we are not, we are, generally we see God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Here in this particular case, it is God, then the Holy Spirit and then Jesus Christ. We will come to this later as to why uh, this unusual order has been followed in this passage. Now, if you see the way John is writing, he says, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. If you and I were to describe the same phrase, we will be inclined to say, grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come. We will always go to the past tense, come to the present tense, and then go to the future tense. But why does John use this present tense first? For John, the eternal presence of God is very important. The eternal presence of God right now. That's why he's using who from him who is. John wants to emphasize God is the ever-present one. Now, as we are doing this Bible study, God is present. That's what he wants to emphasize. God is the ever-present one. You know, he is not God of the past. He's God of the present. As we are doing this study, God is present in every home, wherever you are uh, watching this, listening to this program, God is the ever-present one. Now, I said we will keep going to the Old Testament and to the book of Revelation. From where did God, John get this idea, God is the ever-present one? Uh, it is there when God uh, disclosed himself to Moses he said, I am who I am. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it says, I am who I am. Now, <clears throat> the way it is translated in Septuagint, Septuagint is the Greek version or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. <clears throat> so John had access to the Septuagint. That is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So in that book, this verse is uh, translated, he who is. So John is using the same phrase to say that grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. So he who is. So that is the translation you find in Septuagint. And John is familiar with the Old Testament. He, we said that John was thorough as far as the Old Testament is concerned. That's why out of the 404 verses, his references, uh, he alludes to the Old Testament or he refers to uh, Old Testament more than 278 times. So John was uh, thorough in the Old Testament. So he who is 
and who was and who is to come. Now we have the second person of the Trinity and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now some of the commentators will say the seven spirits are the created angels. Uh, I don't think um, it's, it's, it's apt because uh, he's not talking to the uh, seven created angels, but he's talking, uh, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Seven is a word. We know that when John uses the word seven, uh, he uses the word, you know, seven symbolizes uh, a, what you call a full supply. Seven spirit, seven spirits means Holy Spirit is, it, it, it refers to the plentitude. It's Holy Spirit symbolizes a full supply. When we have the Holy Spirit, we have everything that we need. Now, any idea from where John could have got the idea to refer the Holy Spirit as seven spirits? Any idea? What comes to your mind? Where John could have got this idea to refer the Holy Spirit as seven spirits? You can write your answers in the chat. Uh, any idea, any book which comes to your mind, you can just uh, type your answer in the chat. <clears throat> because it is not John's idea. Uh, John is referring Holy Spirit as seven spirits and he seems to have taken this idea from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Now, Isaiah 11, 2 says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and godliness, the spirit of the fear of God. Now, can you see the seven aspects? The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of godliness, the spirit of the fear of God. Now, if you, if you, if you look at the English translation, you will not find godliness. You'll find the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of God. But if you see the Septuagint, you will find the word godliness is there in Septuagint. So since John has access to the Septuagint, so he's using the seven spirits before the throne. So seven spirit, seven spirits refers to the Holy Spirit the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and godliness, the spirit of fear, the spirit of the fear of God. So in Septuagint, there is a clear word called Eusebias, which means piety, which means godliness, uh, which is not there in our English translation. So since John is referring to Septuagint, so he is saying the seven spirits which are before his throne. So this is how John uses the Old Testament. Now, if we want to come with our own interpretation, if people say it's created angels, it's, it's unlikely. Because whenever there's a reference to the Old Testament, John is going to rely more on the Old Testament. So we saw in Revelation 1, 4 to 5, uh, it says, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Now, why does John list the three in the order of God, spirit and Jesus Christ? Why should he do this? God, Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Is there any reason for him to 
mention this order god spirit and jesus christ if you know your answer you can type it out in your chat box now <clears throat> the answer is very simple we don't have to try to find out because uh, john wants to say about jesus christ so immediately after saying this he wants to continue his message about jesus christ so if john is going to use the usual order it will be like god jesus spirit and jesus once again so in order to have a flow uh, in order to have a smooth flow of the message so god john is using this order god spirit and jesus christ there's nothing uh, special there's no other uh, special meaning about this because he wants to continue his message about jesus christ so in order if you read the letter it will be smooth so john is mentioning god first who is and who was and who is to come and he is going to mention about the holy spirit and from the seven spirits before his throne and then he is going to write from jesus christ and he is going to continue his message about jesus christ that's the reason we find this unusual order in this book now the very next thing he says is you know jesus the faithful witness so he is going to write he is going to mention about jesus so he is going he has used this order of god jesus god spirit and jesus because in revelation 15 he says the faithful witness the first born from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth now he is using the word the, the phrase the faithful witness first because john is writing to seven churches or to believers who are undergoing persecution so he assured them you know jesus is the faithful witness he will not let you down he will not forsake you so his emphasis is to assure the persecuted church that jesus is our faithful witness that's why the first thing that comes to his mind is the faithful witness jesus the faithful witness and then he says the first born from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth uh you know sometimes when when people read this word first born from the dead that means immediately they will start saying first born means jesus was not existed was not in existence from eternity past somewhere in the time he was born that's why it says it says the first born no uh, that's a wrong interpretation he is talking the first born from the dead in other words uh, jesus he's he's just stating or the title the first born from the dead it is basically related to jesus christ status in resurrection when we are talking about resurrection jesus is the first person who rose when we are talking about it's not you know lazarus came to life but that was not resurrection so when we are talking about resurrection in the history of resurrection jesus christ is the first so that is why he uses the word the first born from the dead uh from his status in resurrection and the ruler of the kings of the earth so from where did he get this phrase the ruler of the kings of the earth basically he is going back to the uh, old testament we have a verse in psalm 89 27 and i will appoint him to be my first born 
the most exalted of the kings of the earth now god appoints david now many of the uh, psalms are messianic psalms or many of the verses are pointing towards uh, jesus christ so when god says i'll appoint david it is it is it it points towards jesus christ it it, it is it is implied or it it's pointing towards the son of david so who is the son of david jesus so i will appoint him to be my firstborn the most exalted of the kings of the earth and the rule that from it is from this verse john gets that phrase of course we have the reference uh, to king in other old testament passages also in zechariah 99 rejoice greatly daughter zion shout daughter jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey so basically is taking these phrases from the old testament the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth now he is he is continuing his description about jesus christ uh, in revelation 1:5 he has said the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth and then he continues to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood now what is significant in this verse what is significant the what is significant is to him who loves us the present tense right now jesus loves us as we are reading this book in 2020 jesus loves us see the choice of tenses that he is using to him who loves us that's why this book will always be eternally relevant because to him who loves us till his second coming whoever reads this book can have this assurance that jesus loves them to him who loves us so right now right now in whatever situation we are in we can have this one assurance we can have this assurance jesus loves me jesus loves me that's because it's the word of god to him who loves us and and has freed us from our sins by his blood now not only loves us he has freed us from our sin when he died on the cross uh now i think only uh, new uh, kings james version and also the new kings james version uh they use the phrase to him who loves us and has washed us from our sins by his blood uh otherwise all the other translations they use the word freed us now or it's in the geneva bible uh, that's only the geneva version there's a bible like that it's only in these three versions we find the phrase to him who loves us and has washed us from our sins now the reason why they've used the verse washed us is uh, when the scribes uh, when they were copying the the greek word for freed us is lusanti l u s a n t i so while copying it probably they added one more letter l o u s t a n t i lausanti so lausanti means washed but if you read the rules for you uh, know how you follow your manuscript uh, it is god to him who loves us and freed us but theologically both are perfectly right god has freed us from our sin god has washed us from our sins by his blood so both are right 
So if you are using King James Version and New King James Version, you will find the word to him who loves us and has washed us from our sins by his blood. Just for your explanation, it doesn't, both are okay, has freed us, has washed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins. Why did he do this? What is the reason? What is the purpose for loving us and has freed us? There is a purpose behind it, and that is there in Revelation 1.6, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. He has invited us into his kingdom. And in his, in his kingdom, what we do? We all are priests. You know, we too often we mistake this phrase, this word priest, to mean only ordained pastors, our fathers in the Catholic tradition. No, priest is a word that's applicable to all the believers. The day you are saved, you are not only brought into the kingdom of God, you are also, you have been made a priest. For what purpose? To serve his God and Father. So this is what's known as universal priesthood. Through Jesus Christ, every Christian has access to God and can intercede on behalf of others. You don't have to go to your pastor to say, please pray for this. It's okay. But all of us, if somebody is asking you to pray, you yourself can intercede on behalf of that person. Uh, we should never have this wrong impression. Only pastor prays, God will answer. No, not at all. All of us are priests. And we have to serve his God and Father. And how we serve? One way of doing it is by interceding on behalf of others. So that's the reason Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Then he says in Revelation 1.7, look, look, look. In other words, he's, he's drawing our attention. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now, John is excited as he's writing this book, he's excited. Uh, this verse is called as a doxology. In other words, is a hymn, a hymn of praise. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Look, he's coming. So John, he could not contain his, his emotions. So he's praising God and he's adding his doxology by saying, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all people's on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now, he uses the word, so shall it be. It is a Greek phrase, so shall it be. Amen is a Hebrew phrase. So both mean the same. So shall it be. Amen is what? So shall it be. So in Greek, so shall it be. In Hebrew, amen. In other words, he is affirming this is going to happen. It's a double affirmation to say, Jesus will come again and he will come with the clouds. Now, if you read the Greek version of this verse, he is coming. And the Greek verses uh, for coming is erkomai. Erkomai means yes, he is already on the way. That's what the Greek word means here. His coming means he is already on the way. Erkomai. Uh, so, uh, Christ is already on the way and he's certain to come. He's certain to come. His second coming is certain. That's what he's using this word, Erkomai. Now, why does he use the word clouds? Look, he's coming with the clouds. From where did he get this phrase? Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So it is, it's from Daniel chapter 7, 13. 
Now, clouds in scripture usually symbolize God's presence. Because if you go to, uh, if you, if, you know, a cloud was used as the visible manifestation of God's presence. If you go to Exodus 13, 21, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Now we have that in 1 Kings 8, 10, 12, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. Now, if we come to Acts chapter 1, 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So that's why he's using, uh, coming with the clouds is basically the manifestation of God's presence. So he says, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Those who pierced him, all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. We have these references in Zechariah chapter 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now we have this reference in Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, this, the, the, this passage or this introduction or this greeting comes to its climax in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. This is the climax of this passage. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Alpha and the Omega are the first last letters of the Greek alphabet. Uh, that means God is everything. So basically, we find this reference in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Now, John wants to emphasize God's eternity. He is the first and he is the last. Who is? And then he says, who is and who was and who is to come. Now, with this uh, verse, the introduction comes to an end. Then we have in verses 9 onwards, John's first vision. So today, by God's grace, we have been able to complete um, eight verses. Uh, if you have any questions or answer, if you have any questions, you can ask. You can unmute yourself and you can ask any questions or doubts. Five minutes is given only for you to ask questions. I cannot ask questions, so you can at least ask questions. Okay, there are no questions. Yeah, yes. Pastor, sorry. Uh, Pastor in verse 6, right, uh, he says to be a kingdom of God and to serve his God and Father. Uh, 
uh, we say that uh, Christ, God, and Holy Spirit are equal, and how do we explain like His God and Father to people like verses like this? Uh, you are basically asking about Trinitarian God. How do we explain? Yeah, when verses like this, like uh, there are other verses also, like where he's uh, Jesus is praying to God for like. Uh, how do you explain that? Like, still that Jesus. Uh, he's not asking. That. No, uh, Trinitarian God is such a beautiful. Uh, it's such a beautiful uh, message. If you see the Trinitarian community, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there are three persons, but only one God. Now, if there, if there had been only one person, you can never call your God as God is love. It is because of the Trinitarian community, uh, you can say God is love. Because if the moment you say God is love, then there has to be another person to love him. Now, if, if you don't have that, and if you say, you know, your God is only one person, that means God had to create somebody to love that person, and God is no longer self-sufficient. Because he on the created being to fulfill his need. When you're talking about Trinitarian God, he was self-sufficient. There was no need for God to create us. So, so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's a beautiful Trinitarian community. Now, even though, that's why, you, why don't you use Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, uh, who was, who, though, uh, who in the very nature was God, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God uh, something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, is it clear, uh, Roshan? Kind of. Uh, uh, so, sorry, but it's, it's a difficult topic when uh, so there are these verses which uh, at times show that Jesus is subordinate to God or uh, like things like that. So I just uh, didn't know how to understand these verses. That's all. Okay. Uh, we you will always struggle because God yes, will always struggle. But the but the beauty the Trinitarian community gives us a model. Yes, and when we are drawn into the Trinitarian community, uh, when you understand the the significance of the Trinitarian community, and when God calls you to that community, and when you can live with that community, that will be the object of your life. Uh, because it's such a beautiful community. It gives you a model as to how to live, as to how to live as a true human being. Uh, okay, there's one more question saying that uh, in verse seven, we saw that those who pierced him. Yeah, look, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Uh, every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Uh, the pierced him basically does not refer to the Roman soldiers as such. Basically, it refers to the Jewish people who betrayed Jesus. So it refers to those people. Basically that. It's not the Roman soldiers uh, who, who pierced him. And all will, all will mourn because of him, because when they have rejected Jesus, they have no other alternative but to mourn. When he comes in his second coming, they will mourn because they have rejected him in his first coming. So they will uh, they'll mourn. Uh, the seven blessings 
that I had mentioned, you can just note it down. Uh, Revelation 1.3, the first blessing. Revelation 14.13, and 22.14. Uh, you have the seven blessings. Uh -oh. I think I've answered all the questions. If any question is left out, uh, if you can just uh, speak it out. Jesus um, in his first coming, he came in humiliation. Remember, he's going to come in his second coming in exaltation. Yes, somebody wants to ask something. Um, Pastor, uh, it mentions that all the people of the earth uh, will mourn. Uh, why would all the people of the earth is mourning when Jesus is coming? Does yeah. this verse has any hidden uh, meaning? Yeah. It's all the people it received. Uh, it, it's, it's referring to the people who have rejected him. It's not the people, because people who have accepted him will always be looking forward to his second coming. So it, it refers to that people who have rejected him. This is now, right now, people are, uh, he's writing to the believers who are undergoing persecution. So there is a large chunk of people who have rejected him. So he says, all the people of the earth will mourn. And mourning is only for those, uh, for those who have rejected him. Okay. And uh, one more question, Pastor. Why that extra phrase that uh, it says, uh, uh, every eye will see him. And what is the need for the other phrase, uh, the, which is even those who pierce like, what is, uh, would that be included in the every eye? He's just emphasizing those who rejected him. Like we say, be, be it so and amen. Why is using the double phrase? Just to emphasize that everyone will see him and particularly those who have rejected him. In fact, right now you are going on, uh, you are undergoing persecution. Remember, when he comes in glory, they will all see and they'll mourn. They have rejected him. Okay. Uh, he's, he's taking the phrases from the Old Testament, and uh, you find that in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Okay. Thanks, Pastor. Yeah. Pastor Rachel here. So uh, it says that John wrote to the seven churches in Asia. So uh, you said that it refers to all the churches in the world. So is there a significance why he mentions the particular church name, the place of the church? Yeah, that's what we were saying, that seven represents completeness. And on what basis John chose the seven churches, we are not very clear because when John wrote this letter, there were many more churches in that area. One of the reasons could be he was very familiar with the seven churches. Uh, that's the most probable reason is he knew this seven churches. He had some kind of relationship with the seven churches. And that's why John does not introduce uh, himself. He just said John. So the seven churches also knew John. John is not adding any credentials to his name. John the Elder, John the Apostle is not adding anything like that. So the seven churches were familiar or they knew John. So he has chosen those seven churches. But it represents the universal churches because seven always represents completeness. Okay, okay, okay if you have more questions, you can just... Uh, Pass it on to me. Uh, shall we say this as our closing prayer? Shall we read this verse? Great 
and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, unfailing love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit remain with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you all.